Kids, you are dismissed. Hope you have a great time in your class together. Um, Everybody else, please turn with me to Matthew 6. Today we'll continue in our series of talks on prayer. Uh, We're nearing the end of um, this series. Today we'll cover the very last portion of the Lord's Prayer. And um, quickly, let me tell you what's coming up so you can read ahead and uh, prepare. Next week, we'll uh, look at Luke chapter 11. The, the parallel passage to the one we're looking at in Matthew is in Luke, and it ends with uh, a parable about prayer. And uh, next week, we're going to have a special guest, uh, Daryl Delhuse will be here. He is the president of uh, Phoenix Seminary, and for uh, nearly 20 years, maybe a little more, was the pastor of Scottsdale Bible Church. We have a lot of students uh, here from Phoenix Seminary. We're grateful for the work that the seminaries do here in town. And um, he is uh, going to be with us next week. So look forward to that. He is a character, so you are um, in for a treat. Prepare yourself ahead of time. Um, The following week, we'll be considering how Thanksgiving really forms the bedrock of prayer. Gratitude is what leads us to prayer. And so we'll end our series preparing our own hearts for the Thanksgiving holiday and that night have our um, annual Thanksgiving dinner together. And after that, believe it or not, we will be in December. That's scary, isn't it? December is almost here. Uh, Lord willing, in the month of December, we're going to do a series of sermons on uh, Jesus called Songs of Jesus, where we're going to look at Psalms and how the Psalms foretold and prophesied and prepared the people of Israel for the Messiah. So hundreds of years before Jesus came, the Psalms tell us much about Christ. And so we'll look back at that as a way of preparing ourselves for uh, Christmas. But for today, we are going to finish up uh, the Lord's Prayer. Friends, as we've sung about this morning in many different ways, God exists and He's good and He's powerful and He is our Savior. Jesus taught us in Matthew 6 how to pray, how to approach God. And so for several weeks, we have been very slowly, methodically looking at the pattern of prayer found in Matthew chapter 6. We talked first about how God is our confidence and that we come to God not on the basis of anything we have done, but simply on the basis that He is our Father. And so when we come to God in prayer, we come not in our own actions, but in the character and nature of God. So God is our confidence. And then we talked about how the very first thing we pray about, not every single time we pray, of course, but the normative pattern of our approach to God is that the first thing we do is simply adorn Him. We praise Him for who He is. And so we looked at that from the early portion of the Lord's Prayer. And then secondly, we talked about submission, that we come to our Father and we say, not first of all, God, do what I want, but God, we submit to You. Your kingdom come, Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And then two weeks ago, we talked about a petition that God does want us to come to Him and say, Father, here are our needs. Would you meet them in the way that you best see fit? And then last week, we talked about confession. Father, forgive us as we forgive those who have sinned against us. 
And literally, I spent most of the week, last week, talking with people who God spoke to in that sermon about people they needed to forgive who have harmed them and the ways in which we need to confess ongoing sin. It was a full week of God working in people's lives. It was really wonderful. Today, we're going to talk about what I've simply called ambition, that Father, as we move now from looking at past sins into the future, would you guide us uh, today? So with all of that in mind, I wonder if you'd read with me again from Matthew 6, 9 to 13, as a way of reminding ourselves that this is the pattern of prayer. So let's read together. Father, I mean, uh, pray then like this, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Father, that is our prayer. And we pray that in a similar way to what you chose to do last week, that as Todd prayed, you would use your word in a powerful way. We are people that are led by things and we want to be led by you. And so we pray that you would speak to us today in Jesus' name, amen. I wonder today what you would say you are driven by. What is your ultimate pursuit? I made a list of things that people often can be driven by. Um, Perhaps what really drives you is a sense of autonomy. I do what I want to do when I want to do it. And that's the most core conviction that you have. Others of us are driven by what people think of us. Really what consumes our thoughts is the thoughts of other people and our perception of how they feel about us. Others are driven by power or success or pleasure or attaining some sense of meaning or value or even making a difference. But I wonder today what you would say your ultimate pursuit is. This final portion of the Lord's Prayer is there to teach us that our ultimate pursuit must be God. The endless number of things we could give ourselves to will all fail us except God. Only God delivers. Only God follows through on the promise of giving us lasting joy and meaning and fulfillment. Only God leaves human beings fully satisfied. Only God can bear the weight of worship. As one theologian put it, idols never fail to fail. That's clever, isn't it? But it's also true that anything we put as an ultimate pursuit except God will ultimately wind up failing us. It can't deliver. The gospel teaches us that God himself is the pinnacle of all joy. The Bible, and much less importantly, history, and even less importantly, our own personal experience teach us that God's the ultimate pursuit, that only God is the height of all experience. So if that's true, basically what I want to say today, and if we could sum it up in a sentence, is God is to be our ultimate pursuit. 
God is to be our ultimate pursuit. So if I could flesh that out, because you, you realize I can't finish that quickly, right? <laughs> to be a Christian, then, in a sense, is to have tried the world's pursuits and found them lacking, and then to be rescued by Jesus Christ from deadly, sinful, enslaving, false worship. And to be delivered from those things by God into a place of worshiping Him truly. And then for the rest of our lives, learning how to do that more and more and more by His grace and power in our lives. Some of you may have only conceived of Christianity as a religious system that you ascribe to. And it's so much more than that. It is a system of beliefs, that's true. But it's not just that. Because those beliefs give life to Christ in us and usher in a whole new way of living. These beliefs then compel us to pursue Christ above all things. So that leads me to a question, if I could speak to two different groups of people here today. One is those of you in the room who are not yet believers. One of the things we enjoy the most as a church family is that people who are uncertain about Jesus are here every week. That's a great thing. Welcome. We're glad you're here. What keeps you as a non-Christian from living with God as your ultimate pursuit? What is it that's in the way of God being first? Well, it's not what you might think it is. It's not uncertainty. Because Those of us in the room who are Christians still are uncertain about some things. It's something much deeper, and it's what the Scriptures call the penalty and the power of sin. The Bible gives the picture that the things that we do that separate us from God are not um, abstract and outside of us, but rather they're concrete and they're inside of us, that we are people who carry around in us the consequence of living life apart from God. And that consequence is death, as we sung about earlier. It's separation from God. And yet, God can make us right with Him, as we've been saying today, over and over and over in different ways, in our prayers, in what Michelle said, in her testimony, and in what we've been singing together. Another way of saying that is, What keeps you from running to Christ and enjoying Him are those temporary joys, those little pursuits, those small little tiny ambitions, those sins that keep you separated from God. You see, all people are worshipers, and like every single person here today, you were born with a bent away from God, not towards Him. You were born not as somebody who's worshiping God, but as somebody worshiping God other things. Perhaps, realize, perhaps without realizing it, you have replaced God with worshiping smaller pursuits, smaller ambitions. All of us have. But Jesus came, lived a sinless life, died in your place, and rose again in victory so that you can be restored to a right relationship with God. You see, ultimately, the core message of the Bible is not Perform in such a way that you can somehow attain a good relationship with God. But rather, God performed in such a way. Jesus Christ lived a perfect life, died a sinner's death, 
rose again in victory so that you could get what you could not attain. And that's right standing with God. So what keeps a non-Christian from living with God as her ultimate ambition is the penalty and power of sin. But Jesus offers forgiveness. Amen? So let me ask a related question. What keeps a Christian from living with God as your ultimate pursuit? So for those of us in the room who have crossed that line of faith and have said, I used to not believe in God. I used to not trust Christ. But now I see him as my savior. And so I run to him. I give him all of my sin. He gives me all of his right standing with God. When that happens, everything changes. Forgiveness is granted. The power of sin is broken. The penalty of sin is resolved. But then why are we so miserable still from time to time? Well, it's not because we somehow cross back into not being believers anymore. It's because we choose to live like we've lost that penalty and power, forgiveness of sin. In other words, we can choose to return to life as though we'll, we are still under the power of sin. We can choose to live as though it still has a chokehold on us, if you will. So the rest of the sermon, I want to mainly speak to those of you who would say, yeah, I understand that. I get that. Maybe even I'm living that. Because it's entirely possible to be genuinely saved, to be a follower of Christ, and yet to still live a life of struggle and defeat and hardship. Are you with me? The end of the Lord's Prayer is talking to you. Not primarily non-Christian who hasn't trusted Christ, although there's much here to learn. But Christian who's struggling and wrestling with sin and looking ahead to the day and saying, today I want to walk in the power of Christ and in the forgiveness that he gives us. Brothers and sisters, our ambition is to be led away from anything evil into what's good and honoring to God. So verse 13 says, Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. So as we end the Lord's Prayer today, you'll likely notice, if you've been with us through this whole series, that basically what we're doing is circling back around to the beginning of the prayer. Because it starts with adoration, praise, worship of God. God, you're first. I want to honor you today. I want to see you as most glorious. I want to praise you above everything else. And the end of the prayer is, God, keep me from those things that would keep me from recognizing you as first. It's as though Jesus is saying, I'm aware that even before you end this prayer, you'll be struggling. You'll be forgetting that I'm first. And so start back around there again. I love that about Jesus. He's so full of grace. You see, being delivered from evil is ultimately to see God as worthy of all praise. It's to be, to be delivered from evil is to adorn God as worthy of worship. 
And so Christians are simply people who have been delivered out of darkness into light and now are learning daily how to live in that light. So Christian, is that your greatest pursuit? I hope so. Brothers and sisters, we are people who are learning to hate sin because it dishonors the God who has rescued us from it. We're not simply people who ascribe to a system of beliefs that sit on a shelf until we come in this room. We're people who Christ has rescued, and now we're learning to live in light of it every day. So verse 13, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. That's my introduction. Are you scared? It took a while. The way in which Jesus went about saying that, at least to me, seems a little strange. If you really stop to think about that verse, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Does anything seem odd, off, out of place? It does to me. It's sort of like saying, We should pray, God, today, would you be loving and just and gracious? Amen. Does that prayer have any effect upon making God that? No, of course not. He is that regardless of whether or not we recognize it. And God is not a God who leads people into temptation. So, Why would he say, pray that? Why do we need to say, God, lead me not, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil? Is this just filler? Did Jesus run out of stuff to say, and so that sounded good? It's a little Christianese to throw in at the end of the prayer. No. Then what's going on? Why would we need to pray that? Well, one key to unlocking that door of meaning is the word temptation. Temptation is a full word. The the New Testament of the Bible, so everything from Matthew to Revelation, was originally written in Greek. And the word temptation is that word right there. You want to turn to your neighbor and and say it? Good, Good luck with that. A few of us in the room could do that. There's, all right, so Matthew through Revelation was originally written in Greek. And the word temptation in our Bibles is that word. It's called perosmos. Perosmos. All right, we don't do this very often. But I want to point that out because it helps us understand the meaning. The word perosmos is sometimes translated trial and it's sometimes translated temptation. The exact same word. Sometimes translated trial, sometimes translated temptation. The unified voice of the Bible is that wise, fruitful, godly living involves embracing trials, but fleeing temptations. Same word, but
but very different responses from the Christian. We're to embrace trials, but flee temptations. Anybody confused yet? It's kind of a difficult concept. Same Greek word means two different things. One of them we're supposed to embrace. The other we're supposed to resist. You see, trials are ultimately good. Trials flex the muscles of faith. Trials grow us. Trials mature us. Trials test what's inside of us. Burn off the things that are not of God and sanctify the things that are. Trials are good. They're to be embraced. They lead us out of apathy and self-righteousness into greater holiness. They're to be embraced. Trials are some of God's greatest gifts we never want. But temptations, temptations are ultimately bad. Temptations are enticement to sin. If we connect it back to the, the introduction of this sermon, trials are good, temptations are bad. Temptations are those things, those moments in time in which something promises us joy, meaning, fulfillment, power, success, life, but it's a liar and we choose to do it, to believe it, to pursue it, to think about it. That's a temptation. It's saying, God, I'm going to seek meaning and fulfillment in life outside of you. It's when we choose to follow through on those things. Giving into temptation is always bad. Temptation never results in life. It always results in hardship and death. Now the catch to this is we typically see things in the exact opposite way. We tend to flee from trials and embrace temptations. Are you with me? Jesus is telling us Do the opposite. By my grace, in my strength, in my power, when trials, difficulties, hardships come into your life, don't shove them away. Instead, see them as opportunities to learn new things about God and find new grace and strength and power in God. And when temptations come, reject those. Now, how in the world do we learn to do that? And why is the word the same word? Well, it's partly because we decide. When we face trials, they sometimes come with temptations too, don't they? And how we react to it will determine what happens. Now, keep your finger there in Matthew and jump over to the book of James. If you don't have a Bible, I would encourage you to pull one out of the chair under the rack in front of you, and actually look up this passage because it lays it out for us in really beautiful ways. James wrote this long after Jesus said the Lord's Prayer. And he had internalized it, and the Spirit led him to write this letter, the letter of James. And he helps us understand what's going on here, trials and temptations. So James 1, 2 to 4, we'll start there. James 1, 2-4, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. 
For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. James says, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. He says, when you meet trials, hardships, crises, difficulties, and by the way, all of us will, see those as opportunities to embrace. Now, it's not that the trial is fun. It's not that getting a disease you hadn't planned on getting is somehow the source of endless delight. It's not that losing your job is somehow something you're thrilled about. It's not that having a spouse you love leave you produces happiness. It's that those trials and hardships break down self-dependency. They bring us to the end of ourselves so that we can see how good God really is and find His power is perfected in our weakness. So James is saying, embrace trials. They're going to come. Count it all joy because it's going to produce in you, Christian, things that you would never find without the trial. But then he goes on in the same chapter to tell us to reject, to flee from temptation. Jump all the way down to verse 12. Blessed is the man who remains steadfastness under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he's tempted, I am being tempted by God. Now watch this close. For God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he's lured and enticed by his own desire. James is very helpfully telling us Here's what Jesus meant in the Lord's Prayer. Embrace trial. Reject temptation. And when temptation to sin comes, don't say, God, how could you? Because God's not leading us to sin. Our own desires within us are what lead us to sin. And the way out of temptation is to say, God, help me, strengthen me, lead me not into trial, lead me not into temptation, but deliver me from evil. Isn't that beautiful? It's as though Jesus is saying to us in prayer that we should say, God, you've forgiven me for my past. Now please aid me in my future by rescuing me both from evil and from the evil one. God, as I think about today, don't let me be led into overwhelming, crushing temptation. But in all the trials I will face, deliver me from evil. Because I know in Christ there's victory. I know Jesus was resurrected and now lives in me. And so God, by your strength, help me live for you today. Let me live in your strength and your deliverance. Your glory is my ambition. May I pursue you, not evil, today. This is a prayer 
that circles back around from the beginning to the end and says, God, no matter what I will face today, please don't lead me into sin-inducing hardship, but give me strength that whatever I may face, I can face it with you. Friends, I'm not sure there's something we need to be told more than that today. If this is a prayer that has life, and it does, then oh, that we would pray it and pray it often. God, help me to embrace trials and to reject temptation. Now, I really, really struggled with that whole issue of this is the same word, and that's confusing to me, and why do I need to pray something that is already true? God doesn't lead me into temptation. But friends, when we're facing hardship, it's so easy to get confused. God, what are you doing? I don't understand. And so this is a very concrete, real, practical, helpful prayer. And I'd like to spend the next 10 minutes, the remaining time I have with the message, giving you some practical ways to think about this whole issue of being led out of trials, through the other side of trials, and rejecting the temptations that we face. Or to put that more simply, how to embrace the trials when they come, keep trusting God in them, but to reject the temptations that might come even in the midst of trials. Are you with me? There's a lot of people in the room today, and we have faced a lot and various kinds of trial and hardship. Some of you today are facing things worse than I can imagine, worse than you ever imagined you'd go through. Some of you are long past them, but the scars have not healed. You're walking around with an empty, open wound on your soul. Some of us, those things are still coming, but we have our head in the sand and we don't recognize it. And so in our remaining time, I just want to give you some practical ways to think about them, hopefully in order that we will remember when they come to pray that prayer. God, lead me not into temptation. Lead me out of trial. Help me to embrace it while I'm in it and deliver me from evil. The first one is simply to expect trials. Far too many of us are surprised when bad, hard, difficult things come our ways. We're shocked. Friend, in the most loving way, I know to say, I would say the Bible makes it clear that life in a fallen world will include hardship. It will include trial. And unless Jesus comes back first, it's going to end in all of us dying. You're not getting out of this alive. And so contrary to what we're sometimes told, we don't get our best life now. Our best life is yet to come. And the trial and hardship we face in life are designed by God 
to help us long for that day when he returns. And there's no way to skip that part. It's part of life. Trials remind us that though the kingdom has come already, it's not yet come in full. And so there will be difficulty. There will be crisis. There will be hardship. And not everyone in the world is like us. Can you believe that? Uh, I have had the opportunity to travel many places on mission trips. One of the places this struck me the most was in Rwanda. Anybody else in the room been to Rwanda? There's a few of us from Africa here. Rwanda is a country that has experienced immense hardship. You may remember a, a conflict there between the Tutsis and the Hutus that resulted in nearly a million people being killed. Um, I went there with a group of men to teach Bible stories to people who had converted from Islam to Christianity. And so for two weeks, we gathered in a little hut and we told people the stories of the scriptures to immerse them in the world of the Bible. All of them were former Muslims who had become Christians. And guess what? All of them that were over about the age of 20 were women. Why? Because the men were all killed. And guess what else? And this, was, this is the reason I'm bringing this up. Every single one of those women had lost babies. All of them. Every single woman. Now, they had 8, 9, 10, 11, 12 kids, but that didn't make it any easier. It's not like a dog that has a litter. These are human beings. And every woman had lost a child. To them, it was normal life. At that time, this was 10, 12 years ago, the life expectancy was in the low 40s. So, friends, those people in that society, in that moment of time, they didn't expect trial and hardship. To them, even if they lost a baby, God wasn't some evil, wicked, far-off, distant person. He was right there, even in the trial and hardship. Culturally, they expected something different than we're expecting. Do you follow that? What we tend to expect is a function of where we live. And we're blessed to live in a society where, generally speaking, there's good health care, where people tend to live a lot longer, where most of us aren't struggling to wonder how we're going to eat the next meal. And so our affluence tends to teach us we can manage everything that happens. And, and that's a lie. We can't. And crisis will eventually come knocking at your door. And so we've got to learn to be people that expect trial. The issue is not if hard things happen, but how we'll respond when they do. I can't dwell long here, but if you don't expect trial, I think 
one of four things is going to happen to you. Either when difficulty comes, you're going to get angry and blame God and other people. And so if I am going through life with blinders on, and then crisis comes, then some of us, our reaction is going to be anger. Not, I'm not talking about momentary, you pass through it in a moment anger, but eat your guts anger. Destroy your insides anger. And you'll blame God and blame people. You can avoid that. That doesn't have to be your plight. Christ's power is bigger. Others of us, though, we're not particularly prone to anger. If we don't prepare, we crumble in guilt and we blame ourselves. Some of us are fighters. Some of us, we fall deep into guilt and shame and internal crisis when hardship comes. It doesn't have to be that way either. There's power in Christ. Others of us will not really get angry and not really crumble in guilt, but will just develop this hard, protective shell over our hearts. And eventually that causes it to calcify and we don't let anyone get close. And so we look fine on the outside, but actually we're stone cold and nothing seems to penetrate us. Have you met anybody like that? Why are they that way? It's probably not just because they came out of mom uptight. It's because trial and hardship calcified their hearts. And if you don't prepare, that's a real risk. That could happen. And fourth, maybe you won't do any of those things, or you'll do all of them at some time or another, but really you'll give yourself to worldly pursuits. You'll, you'll say, I'm going to hide my hurt in sex, in work, in degrees, in money. Friends, in, in like, what, 120 seconds, we just painted the picture of the four things that most often happen in hardship. I don't say any of that to say it's simple, but to say it's, it's relatively uncomplicated. Human beings meet trials. Human beings respond. Human beings go one of those four ways without Jesus Christ. But you don't have to go any of those ways. Because Jesus came, died, rose again to rescue you from all of that. Amen? Trials are the best things we never want to happen to us. Think of a woman who wants kids but is so scared of the pain of childbirth she's unwilling to get pregnant. She will never know the joy of being a mother. Think of an athlete who wants to be better. He wants victory. But he or she is unwilling to sweat and have sore muscles. There's going to be no victory. Think of a student who wants to learn an al- a foreign language, but they won't do the work of learning the alphabet. Friends, the same thing is true for us spiritually. We will face hardship. Jesus is saying, pray, God, 
lead me not into temptation in those trials, but rescue me out of them. Keep me from evil in them. Deliver me from the evil one. 1 Peter 4, 19 says, Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. That's the only way past trial and hardship. I've got to go on and we'll be here all day. Two, process trials through the Father's love and the church family's help. Friends, my dad, uh, growing up, used to tell me, son, it's not so much what happens to you, but how you choose to think about it. It turns out he's right. The difference between us, and I don't mean you and me, I mean all of us, is not so much what happens to us. It's the way we choose to think about it. And God says we're transformed through the renewal of our minds. Some of the most godly, loving, patient, gracious, fun people you will ever be around are the people who have been through the most difficult things. Why? Because they've learned in trial. It's only through God I can survive. And God has produced life out of what was broken. You'll never get there if you curse the trial and you hug and embrace the temptation. The church family is designed by God to help us process that God is a good father. What mother or father rescues their child from every little thing they face? Those of you who have had an infant, do you remember those days when the kid is laying trying to flop over. Is that a pleasant experience? Those of you in the room without kids, no, it's not. They, they scream, they cry, they get frustrated, they mess themselves because they're trying so hard. I'm serious. Um, I am doing physical therapy multiple times a week right now. And one of the things they have me do is lay on the ground and try to flop over without using the lower half of my body. Try it when you get home today. The first several weeks, they had to prop this pillow thing up under me because I couldn't do it. I literally could not turn over by myself. Now, yes, I'm a puny little scrawny man. But what are they doing? My back is so messed up, I can hardly walk. And so they're trying to strengthen it. And so laying, only using from here up, is causing me to use muscles I haven't been using, and it's agonizing. But it's growing me. It's, to put it in the terms we're talking about in a sermon, it's maturing me. Now, the I, I, this is not a lie, I promise. The first time I flopped over, I literally said, why aren't you cheering for me? Because that's what parents do when the baby flops over. <laughs> Friends, 
the trials of life are, are God's means to help you spiritually flop over, to grow. And so see the Father as a good parent who knows you've got to flop to grow. You've got to turn over. And process those with the family's help. Number three, pursue Christ every single day. Make honoring Him the most important thing. That will prepare you for when difficulties come, that you can run to Jesus. 1 Corinthians 10, 13 says, No temptation has overtaken you. That is not common to man. God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. Friends, you will never face anything that Jesus didn't face something similar and make it through it. Now, why does that matter? Because the scriptures say, if you're a believer, then Christ is in you. Therefore, there is no temptation that is so great you must give in to it. None. It will feel like it because that's what trial does. But if we submit to Christ, run to him, rest in the gospel, then we'll find his strength to endure. And many of us have found that in the room. Now, when those temptations come, what do we do? Well, number four, fight temptation with God's word. Jesus, when he was tempted, how did he make it through? He made it through because he internalized the word of God and he fought off temptation with scripture. He knew the power to face temptation comes by the Holy Spirit through the word of God. If Jesus needed that, I think you might too. And finally, rest in the gospel. Rest in the gospel. Friends, none of us in the room have faced temptation and won every time. But someone did. So the message of the gospel, even in this sermon that's hard to receive, isn't face every trial and face every temptation by trying really hard so that you can stay in God's graces. That's not the gospel. The gospel is Jesus faced every trial and every temptation. He met them perfectly. Therefore, run to him. He is your life. He is your hope. He is your strength. You stand with me and let's pray. And as we pray, the band's going to come. And they're going to lead us in one more song that we'll sing together in victory that we have in Christ.